Well, it's our time to come to the Word of God, and so I'll ask you to just bow with me once again in a word of prayer as we ask God to attend to our study. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You that we have Your Word. We thank You that in these days You have spoken to us in Your Son, and that we can study the truth, we can know the truth, we can begin to live according to the truth by the power of Your Spirit through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and we are here to know of Him, to learn of Him, and to exalt Him. So attend to our time and to our learning, all for your praise and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I do want to say thank you to Russ and uh, what was potentially going to be Neil preaching last week. However, God had other plans. And uh, I know the church was canceled due to the ice and things like that, the things we have to deal with here in New England. Hebrews chapter 2, I want to spend some time this morning there as we focus our attention on just the first four verses As we begin this new year, as we start off afresh, as we're oftentimes thinking of the new and how we're going to uh, spend our new year or the calendar year and thinking and uh, our own spiritual lives. And I want to I want to challenge us in that. I want to help us with that. You've probably looked in your bulletin already today and maybe you've already noticed that I've entitled this morning's message Drifting and Devaluing Christ. Drifting and devaluing Jesus Christ. I I understand and realize at the outset that you may not understand all that, what that means by way of that title. I hope by the end of our time this morning you'll have a better grasp of that. But at the outset, just understand it, that it means what it means by just the surface of what it's saying, devaluing and drifting from Christ. In other words, if Jesus Christ is personally valued in any less of a way than for what He truly is, if He is edited, devalued, modified, in some way less than what He really is, then there will be grave consequences spiritually for our lives, both in our life now and if we find out in the future that our life was not what it ought to be and we, like maybe Judas, have turned our backs on Jesus Christ, we will have grave consequences to come. That is simply to say that if we will not embrace Jesus Christ according to the immeasurable and inestimable value that He truly is, whether it be by outright rejection of Jesus Christ as the only true God, the living Savior of the world, as we saw a couple weeks ago even in Luke, or just by subtle disregard, i.e. drifting from Him, the only thing that awaits is chastening consequences to the disobedient Christian, and inevitable eternal destruction in eternity for all who are unsaved. 
Those are the only two options. There is no middle ground. There is no subcategory within that by which you might go and hang out for a while until so many people might pray you out of that place. It will not happen. That is the heresy of the Catholic Church, but there is no such place. To take your last breath as a believer is to be in the presence of Christ, and to take your last breath as an unbeliever is to remain under the wrath of God for eternity. The wrath of God remains on you if you do not know Jesus Christ. As you know, my wife and I just returned from a short trip away to see our grandkids over the holiday, and while we were away, I was I was thinking of places that have taken great pains in the attention to details in which they operate. We went to a, a public museum there in the final days that we were there, and it was a meticulous place. It had all kinds of old items there, but those items were very well kept. They had a, a whole host of cash registers in one place, old cash registers, because the National Cash Register place, NCR, is out there where we were in Ohio. And there, those cash registers were old, but they were meticulous. They were they were looked brand new to my eye. They were very well kept. And I don't know if you've ever been to a place like that, a public garden or some public location where everything is kept in immaculate condition. Every part of the complex is maintained with meticulous care and and with detail. They don't ever let the paint chip. All the rails are painted all the time. The garbage is picked up at everything. You never see a weed. You never see overgrown plants. All the trash is put in the proper receptacles. It's interesting to me that there are places in our pagan world that recognize in and of their own business model, they recognize a great value in what they have and what they do to maintain it. I was thinking about this as I and I began to wonder how different it would be if those places slipped for just one day. If if whoever was taking care of it just began to drift a little from from the meticulous nature of what they did. What would happen if they they slid away from the dedication to keep everything just like it was pristine in every way? And of course, then my mind began to wander to what my previous job was as an air traffic controller, and I began to think about pilots flying across the country and how they navigate and they follow compass headings, and if they let that compass heading go just one degree off for a lot of miles, they're going to miss their place. They're not going to get there. And as I was thinking about all that, I began to think about how true that same principle is for all of us who profess to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Not only those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, true Christians, but I begin to think about those whose faith isn't real. Those who are so-called believers. Those who have heard the gospel they haven't heard it just one time. They've heard it many, many, many times, and yet they've never embraced Christ. They willfully just reject Him. They at times look like real Christians. They 
never really have embraced and entrusted themselves to Christ themselves, but from time to time, at least on the outside, they're like a broken clock. They're right twice a day. They're just going through the motions. They're like like an old barn that's painted on the outside, but on the inside it's really just all dilapidated and falling apart. It looks good on the outside. It's rotting on the inside. Why? Because they continue to devalue Christ. They don't think Christ is really worth it. He's not, he's not enough. He's not what I need. He's a good crutch for other people, but He's not what I need. And for the true Christian... We can be like that sometimes. We can be just like those who are not saved. In the beginning, we, we confess sin, right? We, we come to Christ. We say we're sinful. We know we're sinful. We know we deserve wrath. We say that we love Jesus Christ. We, we even begin then to pray often. We pray continuously. We read the truth of God's Word continuously. We open the Bible. We're so excited about the Bible. We pull the Bible out at every chance we can get. We're dedicated to the people of God. We would never think of not being around the people of God when the people of God are gathering. We would never even think about it. There would be nothing that would stop us. It doesn't matter what's happening in life. We just, we just make it a priority because we love Jesus Christ. We're so attuned to our relationship with Jesus Christ, everything else seems to take a back seat to that. In fact, if we were to put an actual value on our professed relationship with Jesus Christ, it would be at the top. Nothing else would take place. Nothing else would be taken away from it. Nothing else would be devaluing. Nothing else would be shadowy. Nothing else would come close. And then, sadly, over time, over time, we begin to drift. We stop reading our Bible as often. We read it. We just don't read it as often. Some of us, sadly, maybe even stop altogether. Our prayer life begins to wane. It becomes less and less, more limited. It's only when crisis arises that we really go to God and we ask Him for His help because here we're in a situation whereby we can do nothing about it. For the most part, we really don't pray at all. And church, well, being with God's people, study together, fellowship together, well, after all, I've had a tough week. It's been hard. Life's been difficult the other six days. I'm tired. Or or maybe, yeah, I come, I come. Once is enough, though. After all, Monday's just the next day, and, and I have a lot to do, not to be ready for the week. Slowly, but surely, we drift. We drift. Our tendency is to drift. And where Christ once seemed to be of the greatest value to us, now, Now we're at the first day of the year, the first Sunday of the year, and we're seemingly having to make a New Year's resolution to get serious with God. 
A slow drift has taken place. That relationship that once was most valuable is taking a back seat. It's now in the back row. It's in the back row of my own thinking. There are other things that are considered more valuable to me. At one time, Christ was my all, or at least I professed Him to be my all. I talked about Him in those ways, but now because of both sins committed and obedience omitted, my life with Christ just lost its luster. Not as bright. He's been devalued in my heart. It's not necessarily intentional, but the devaluation of Christ has crept in. Why? Because of inattention. Because of inattention. I, I, I Coasting was okay. Coasting was good enough. Because of inattention and carelessness in reference to my own spiritual life, and maybe even because, maybe even because of total unbelief. And so because of willful sin and personal neglect, the pristine wonder of Jesus Christ is gone from my spiritual eyes. And I don't realize it, but I'm in grave danger. That's the kicker of it. That's the kicker of drifting. That's the kicker of devaluing Christ. When we devalue Christ, we, we get to the place where we don't even realize we're drifting toward spiritual shipwreck. We go along thinking we're okay. Everything's fine. That's how eternally dangerous it is to devalue Christ. And that's why I wanted to return here this morning to Hebrews chapter 2, because in an effort to counter this tendency for all who profess Jesus Christ, but especially, especially for those who are professing unbelievers, those who are actually unbelievers but, but claim that they're believers, the writer of Hebrews here highlights the absolute supremacy of Christ to everything, especially to those things we consider most valuable to us in the here and now. Christ is more valuable than anything on this earth. He is more valuable than anything, even in the glories of heaven, as we read earlier from chapter 1. There is nothing more valuable than Christ. He is, it says in verse 3, the radiance of, the, of His glory. That is, He is God in the flesh. He's the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. Christ is everything. If we, if we were just to write that in a nutshell, we could write that right there in the parentheses. Christ is everything. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more valuable. There is nothing better than Jesus Christ. Now, the writer of Hebrews is addressing three different kinds of people here as he's writing to the Jews. And if we, we, if we don't get it right as to who he's actually talking to, we can come away confused by what's being said here. Because there are Jewish believers that he is addressing, true believers who are Jews, 
And they are in danger of drifting. They're in danger of drifting back away from the the faith that they have in Jesus Christ purely back to a, a modified religious kind of activity whereby they believe in Jesus and continue to think that justification is by works or the old law. Kind of like what we've been studying in Galatians. That Paul is challenging the Galatian believers that they didn't start out with the law justification by works, and so why go back that way? It's worthless. Well, the writer of Hebrews is is challenging those in that group as well. But there are Jewish unbelievers, those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. They're, They're living by this religious activity. They want nothing to do with Christ. They're still waiting for the Messiah. Jesus isn't the Messiah in their mind much like many of the Orthodox Jews today that live in Israel. Jesus isn't the Messiah, so he's writing to, to pure unbelievers as well that Christ, Jesus Christ is the superior one. And then there are the Jewish unbelievers who have acknowledged the truth concerning Jesus Christ. They've acknowledged that he's the Messiah. They, they've acknowledged in an intellectual sense that they believe in Jesus. They claim to know Jesus Christ. They are actually, though, unbelievers because they never really embraced Christ by faith, and it shows in their fruitless life. There is no real fruit of the Spirit. And it's to this third group that the writer of Hebrews is primarily addressing, at least at this moment, as he, as he highlights from verse 5 in chapter 1 down through verse 14, this primacy of Jesus Christ even above what they worshipped at the time, what many worshipped, which were angels. Remember verse 1, it says, God spoke long ago to the fathers in prophets in many portions and in many ways, through dreams and, and visions, and, and God sometimes dispatched angels to give the word to people. We saw that even in Luke chapter 1, where God dispatched Gabriel with these miraculous messages about the coming of Jesus Christ. So it is this third group whereby he is dealing with them and their idea and their treatment of angels, that Christ is superior to angels. And some of the Jews had professed Christ. They had begun, though, however, to show the effects of devaluing Christ by drifting back to their old system of religion. Old, cold, religious duty. Taking what is a life of sanctification whereby we obey the Word of God because of faith in Jesus Christ and now taking those activities and transferring them into the idea of justification whereby if I do them, therefore God loves me. That's one group. The others were professing Christ, but they they really didn't know Christ because... They hadn't embraced him by faith, yet both of those groups are devaluing the truth of Christ in their hearts. And one of the ways they were doing that was putting greater value on the angels, worshiping angels. It was through the angels that God had mediated the Old Testament law. And because of that, angels were held very high esteem in the Jewish mind. They were, they were held as those that they could worship. These were angelic beings, after all, and we worshiped them. Is it any wonder that Gabriel, when he came, and any other angel when he came, said, listen, don't worship us. 
don't worship us, worship God. Many worship them and many worship the law. And so throughout chapter 1 of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ, the value of Christ is highlighted in great detail. So that now, with that superiority of Christ ringing in the ears of all who have heard it, he gives us a sober warning in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice what he says. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. I know when I was growing up as a young boy in my parents' house, anytime my mother yelled our names with the middle name, we paid attention. We paid attention. Well, this is God doing that with us. Pay attention. Take heed. Take heed here. Pay the greatest attention to what you have heard. What you have heard. Don't drift past. Don't drift past in any kind of way, in the slightest of minutia, in in changing it at all. Don't drift past the truth of Christ as if He is of no value. Don't drift past that. Listen, the divinely prescribed antibiotic for spiritual drifting is to give acute and actual attention, to give attention in our very lives and how we live to what we have already heard. You see, when we're not, when we're not living with Christ as the value what we're doing is devaluing what we've heard. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, you've heard God speak in the past. He spoke through the prophets. He used angels to do that. But now He's spoken to us in His Son. Listen, pay attention. There's no greater value than that. Give heed to the message of Christ because the message demands it of us. That's what He's saying. It's not asking. It's not saying, hey, listen, here's a, here's a nice suggestion for us as Christians. You might want to listen to Jesus. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, you, you better pay attention to that. In fact, you might not only just need to pay attention, you need to pay much closer attention than the attention that you say you've been giving. Pay much closer attention. Why? Because every response carries with it a commensurate consequence. Every response to what we've heard carries with it a consequence in the same way every response to the Old Testament law that was mediated by the angelic beings carried its just consequence. You say, really? That's what he's saying? Yeah, look at what he says in verse 2 and 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and because it was unalterable, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The inevitability 
is before us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Listen, you have to pay much closer attention because if it hasn't changed your life, if it's so easily devalued and you're drifting, then you better pay attention. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland in your past. They have a ride there called the Atopia Cars. They have a little mechanism underneath those cars that keep you from drifting. It's a little metal thing that goes down the center of the track and a little piece of metal there. So if, even if you don't turn the wheel, the car goes doing, 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 doing to keep you from drifting. Well, we have that too. It's called the Word of God. Christ is the center track. We have the Word of God to keep us from drifting. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, the Old Testament law was inflexible. The Old Testament law was unbending. In fact, that's the ultimate nature of the law. It's unbending. The Old Testament law was written on stone. It was firm. It was certain, unwavering, didn't change. There was no fudge room. It was the law. It took place when it spoke. Everyone took notice. The law took notice of every deviation from what it said, whether it was right or proper, and it made its just judgment. The writer of Hebrews says, look, every sin received its just recompense. Every transgression, every disobedience received its just recompense. In the original language, that's two categories of sins. It's two categories of sins, and in those two categories, all sins fall. There are sins of commission, transgressions, things we do that we should not be doing, that the Word of God tells us not to do. And there are sins of omission or disobedience, things we ought to do that we do not do. Right? Huber says, listen, the law never looked over any of that. It didn't say it's okay if you do sins of omission, but sins of commission are the ones we're going to judge. No. Sins demanded a recompense. Some sins demanded that a person be put to death. And all of the other sins that didn't command to be person be put to death, according to the law, a substitute had to die as an offering for the sin. So it didn't matter what the sin was, something had to pay the ultimate price. Something had to die. The constant and unbending cry of the law was this, the soul that sins shall die. No flexibility. In every case, there was a demand for that just recompense. And that just recompense was commensurate with the seriousness of the crime. And no sin was excusable. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In every case. So under the law that was given by God through the ministering angels, every act of rebellion, whether it was willful or whether it was even careless, would have an inescapable consequence. So the writer of Hebrews continues the logic. 
And he says in verse 3, if that's the case with the hardcore law written on stone, how shall we escape who are no longer under the law? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? See, folks, here's the sobering reality of all that's being said concerning the superiority of Christ and the danger of devaluing Him through sinlessness or through carelessness. Here's what's being said. If the lawful word that was brought by God through the angels proved to be unalterable, then how much more unalterable do you think the word brought by God the Father through the Son is? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If the Word of God was unalterable, given through ministering spirits, the angels, how much more unalterable is the Word of God when we get it from His very lips? It's easy for us to devalue the Word of God. Well, it, 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 you know, listen, it came through somebody else. It came through a mediator. It came through somebody, yeah, that we, they're highly respected. Yes, we, we respect them. That's very nice. They were someone who brought us the Word of God. But listen, the Word of God comes through God. It is God's Word. He has spoken to us in these days in His Son, the living Word. How shall we escape? The writer uses some interesting terminology here. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect? We neglect. Neglect is an interesting word. It, it really encompasses all of that idea. How are we going to escape if we treat carelessly? How are we going to escape if we disregard the great message? You know what the word neglect means in its original language? This is, this is what it really carries with it, because the word is amaleo. It means to make light of. Make light of. Well, sometimes we think neglect, oh, I have nothing to do with it. But that's not the case. The writer of Hebrews says, if we just make light of it. In other words, if we don't treat it as it is, if we don't treat it with the seriousness, with the respect, with the valuation, that it is. How are we going to escape? Again, I think about that pilot flying from New York to Los Angeles who leaves the runway one degree off heading. He's not going to land in Los Angeles. He's going to be a long way off. Just because at the beginning, he neglected, he was careless, he disregarded with just a little bit, the direction that he needed to go. He made light of it. So We have to listen carefully here. We have to listen carefully. There is no escaping the righteous hand of God. 
For the Christian, there's no escaping the chastening, loving hand of God. For the unbeliever, there's no escaping the righteous judgment of God. There's nowhere to flee for those who make light of the great message of God. You cannot disregard the gospel. You cannot disregard the gospel at any level in our life, whether we're saved or unsaved. If an unbeliever disregards the gospel, guess what? There's only one place they will end, shipwreck as an unbeliever in the wrath of God. And for the believer, there is the chastening hand of God. If we disregard the gospel message of Jesus Christ, We are drifting and devaluing Christ. So how often we make light of the great salvation in Jesus Christ is a reflection of how often we devalue Christ in our hearts. And when we devalue Christ, we begin to drift. I wonder sometimes how often we've become so familiar with the truth that we regard it as commonplace. The initial beauty that we saw when we first encountered the glories of Jesus Christ, all of that left us stunned. We were in wonder. We were in awe of who Jesus Christ was, but through our repeated exposure, through our familiarity with Jesus Christ, because of our own careless attention to the things of our own spiritual life, we've grown bored with Christ. And even without knowing it, we're drifting. I wonder sometimes how often, even as we are here this day in a group like this, How often, many times we've heard the truth of Christ in the gospel and we continue to ignore what it says. We continue to ignore and disregard it as if it's unimportant. We make light of it continually and we drift past. We drift past, willfully drift past the harbor of salvation. The only thing left is the rocks of God's wrath. How often do we who truly know Jesus Christ, true Christians make light of the value of Christ by convincing ourselves you know, I'm just too busy. Just too busy. I got a busy week. I work a lot of hours. I got little kids. My kids need a lot of attention. Home life is busy. The cares and concerns of accomplishing all of that overwhelms me at times. I mean, after all, now I live in a world that's going crazy with all kinds of stuff. How do I deal with all that? Listen, if we're not vigilant, if, if we're not vigilant, this is why I think this is important the first week of the year. If we're not vigilant, those cares work to keep us from all the glories of our profession of loving Christ. 
All of those things are going to cause us to drift. One man put it this way, and I I think it's good for us here in New England, this time of year especially. He put it this way. It's a good word picture. A snowflake is a tiny thing, he said. Snowflake's a tiny thing. But when the air is full of them, they can bury you. Ah, what a great picture. What a great picture. All of those things that, that God allows by his providential oversight in our life, even all that we're walking through right now in our world and everything and how that affects your little area of living, all of that are just snowflakes. But if you allow it, it'll bury you. Valuing the cares of this life over Christ will eventually bury you in a sea of spiritual trouble. And the writer of Hebrews is warning us, pay attention to what we've heard. Don't neglect so great a salvation, he says. Don't neglect that. What, what makes this a great salvation? That's the question. What makes it so great? I mean, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, if you neglect it, there's going to be a commensurate penalty meted out to the one who does neglect it. And, and then he goes on to say, this great salvation is something we hear, right? Don't neglect what you've heard. Pay closer attention to what you've heard. So this great salvation is a message. It's, it's words, it's truth that must not be neglected. And according to chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, God spoke long ago through the prophets, and now He's spoken in His Son concerning what? The purification of sins. You notice that in verse 3 of chapter 1, when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, this great salvation is a message of the gospel. It's the gospel. So why Paul is so adamant with the Galatian believers. Listen, you get the gospel wrong... And people are going to go to hell. You want to get the gospel right? Listen, here's how you get the gospel right. Tell them what Jesus said. Tell them what Jesus said. We don't get to save anybody. We don't get to even have a part in saving anybody other than being a conduit of the gospel. So we better get our part right. Just share the gospel. Just share what Jesus said. Pray God would do the work. The writer of Hebrews said it's the message of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. That's the great salvation. So that when we devalue Christ by giving other things priority, when we, by disregarding the clear teaching of God's word, devalue Christ, or through careless neglect, we allow our spiritual lives to fall into some kind of disrepair? We are, by virtue of our own willful sin and our own carelessness, 
no longer giving attention to the gospel. We're not giving attention to the gospel in our life. And the consequences will always be spiritual drifting for the believer and total shipwreck for the unbeliever. There are those who give mental assent to the truth of the gospel. They appear to believe. They're like a fake apple stapled to a real apple tree. They look right. They look like a Christian. Sometimes even talk like a Christian. But they've never experienced true repentance. Never experienced the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you know what happens? They pay little attention to what they've heard. For them, the gospel is of little value. The writer of Hebrews is warning them. But not just them, he's warning us, those who do believe. Why? Because slippage is easy. It's easy. Slippage is very easy. You say, how easy is it? Over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for a moment. Why do I need to keep in the truth? Why do I need to continue to hear the truth? Why do I need to have Christ as a value? Why does Christ need to be the highest thing for me? Why, why is my service to Christ, my devotion to Christ, my outworking of the gospel in my life so important? Why is it to be the highest value? Why do I have to be careful about drifting? Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, realize this. And in the last days, difficult times will come. We're living in last days, beloved. These are the last days. So ever since Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, it began the last days. We're in that. Christ could return any time. In these difficult times, what's it going to look like? Well, men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. They'll be disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy and unloving. Unloving simply means without any family affection. We see that all over the place. Irreconcilable, that's the number one cause of divorce in the world. Irreconcilable differences. Malicious gossips, without self-control, they'll be brutal, they'll be haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yet they hold to a form of godliness. They look like they're religious. They look like and even call themselves Christian. even though they've denied its power. Avoid that kind of thing. Avoid such men like that. Why? Because they'll lead you astray. They'll enter into your house. They'll take you captive when you're weighed down with sins, led on by your own impulses. Well, what do they look like? They look like who oppose Moses. They oppose truth. They oppose truth. We live in an anti-truth world. If you think we're far from this, you're not reading the Scriptures. Listen, we live in an anti-truth world. This is exactly the heart and nature of what we exist in. 
opposing truth. There is no truth out in the world. Everybody says what they want and says it's truth. No one cares, seems to care about truth. Why? Because they're depraved in their minds and they're rejected as regards to the faith. They're shipwrecked. Why would the Apostle Paul warn Timothy of that? Because of the tendency to drift. We tend to drift. That's the tendency of our fleshy hearts. The tendency is to rest and say, I'm okay, I'll just go along, the course has been okay, I'm fine, it's not too, too bumpy, I'll just drift. This is a warning for us, slippage is so easy. One man said it this way, it's the careless sailor that crashes on the rocks. I like that. It's a great picture. Great picture of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. We better take heed to the truth we've heard. We better take heed to the truth that we continue to hear lest we slowly and even imperceptibly find ourselves slipping past the safe harbor of Christ. So why is this so great a salvation? He says, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Why is it so great? Because it's the message of Christ, right? There's nothing greater. That's what the rest of verses 3 and 4 say. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. They didn't neglect what they heard. God was bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders, by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The gospel of Christ, notice, was first preached by Christ. You see that? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, God may have used angels to mediate the Old Testament covenant of law, but it is Jesus Christ who is the mediator and first proclaimer of the gospel. We're not there yet in our study of Luke, but Luke chapter 4, verse 16 in the following reads this way. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Right? Now here's Jesus as the first preacher of the gospel. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. So here's Jesus speaking about himself, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and to recover sight to the blind, to set free those who are trodden down, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, watch this. And he closed the book, and he gave it to the attendant, and he sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. Here it is. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I came, and I fulfilled what I was coming to do, to preach to you about salvation in me alone. What happened? You keep reading in Luke chapter 4, the place goes crazy. 
He's claiming to be the Messiah. They go crazy. They chase him out of town and want to throw him off a cliff. Did exactly what God brought him here to do as the Son of God incarnate in the flesh. God himself, he came as a preacher of the gospel. Well, look, and we need to catch this. Verse 3. And it was confirmed to us by them that heard him. God also bearing witness. So you have Jesus preaching the gospel concerning himself. And then you have other Jews who are believing Jews who have heard the gospel telling others about Christ. And then, verse 4, God also bearing witness with both them by signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Jesus is preaching, people are being saved. The first generation of believers in Jesus Christ by faith through the preaching of Jesus Christ, and they're the apostles. Those are the ones who heard it. He confirmed it with those who had heard. God bore witness by signs and wonders. Right? They're going out, they're telling others the truth of Jesus, and people are wondering if they should believe these guys who are talking about this guy who was killed on the mountain. What they're being told, they don't have a New Testament. They don't, they don't have the Word of God except the Old Testament Scriptures in which Christ is concealed. And so God is confirming their message through signs and wonders and miracles by gifting of the Holy Spirit according to His will. We don't need those confirming signs today. Why? Because we have the Word of God. We have the Scriptures. Someone comes along and says, hey, I have a word for you from God, and they speak something other than the Scriptures. We know they're a bunch of nonsense. Someone says, hey, I have a word for God, from God to you, and they open the Scriptures and they read what God says. I can go, okay, that's from God. There's so great salvation here, then, that must not be neglected is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We cannot drift from our Focus on Jesus Christ. It's so easy. So easy, yet so destructive. All you need to do as an unbeliever to go to hell, all you need to do, you just need to do one thing. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer, all you need to do is this. You want to go to hell? Just neglect Jesus Christ. Turn from Jesus Christ. Walk out the doors today and say, yeah, whatever. That's all you need to do. We don't want you to do that. We want you to respond to Jesus Christ. Why? Because the very character of Jesus Christ, who he is, is incomparable to anything else you've ever known. So don't go away from here satisfied in your own self-made religion. Don't go away from here because you're counting on your feelings. Well, I feel good. Don't do that. Don't be satisfied because you grew up in a Christian home and you come to church and somebody brings you to church and you've been in this church for a long time and so, oh, okay, I'm okay. No, don't be satisfied with that. We'll be drifting into a Christless hell unless we've made a personal relationship 
commitment with Jesus Christ. He has spoken to us in His Son. He's the heir of all things. That's the only way to keep you from drifting as a Christian. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. We don't do that, we will drift. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Well, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, it is our desire, it's the desire of you, really, to see others come to know you. It's the desire of you that others would believe you are more valuable than anything. There are some, I'm sure, here who have played the game. They've heard the truth. They even on an intellectual level understand the truth. But because of the sinfulness of the heart, they devalued Christ, never really embraced Him as Savior and Lord. And the proof is how they live. They're religious, no relationship with Christ, though. Lord, I pray that you would grant them your mercy to really believe. Out of your mercy, don't reject them outright for their rebellion. Save them today. Because we all need to respond to what we've heard. Neglect is damningly dangerous. And so I pray that all of us would not be a fool, duped by the lies, walk away from grace, especially the saving grace that we find in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin that is in Him. May that be the best day of the year. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.